Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. And welcome into AOA, Agriculture of America. Thank you for joining us here on the program today. Great to have you along for the conversation. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Coming up on today's show, we're going to have a conversation after the bottom of the hour in segment three with Rachel Snyderman from the Bipartisan Policy Center. We want an update on the first of two government shutdown deadlines that are in front of us here coming up on Friday. What is the latest she is hearing from Washington, D.C.? We're going to talk about that coming up later in the program. Before that, we're going to take a look at a new white paper out from the University of Houston looking at carbon dioxide pipelines. They're not taking a position either way on pipelines, but they're looking at the benefits and some of the concerns with pipelines. We'll talk to Paul Doucette from the University of Houston coming up here in segment two. And also at the end of the show today, we're going to get a preview of Commodity Classic happening here in just a few short weeks time in Houston, Texas. Brandon Honeycutt's one of the chairs of this year's Commodity Classic. We're going to talk to him coming up at the end of the program today. First up, though, let's take a look at what's happening in the market trade. Kind of a quiet start on Thursday. It's been an interesting week for sure. Joining us for a conversation about the markets, Mike Zuzalo with Global Commodity Analytics is here with us. And Mike, thanks for joining us today on the show Hope you're doing well. These markets uh, looking a little interesting here so far on Thursday as we near the end of the week, Mike. Yeah, the technical slide continues here, Jesse, at this point. We've got hard red wheat with a little bit warmer weather still forecast for this weekend and especially for next week. And also talk now of uh, starting up the Ukraine-Russia grain deal again. Um, hard red wheat's now posted the lowest move since July 2021, took out its November of last year's low. And as a result, we're sinking deeper. I think that's helped give the corn fresh new contract lows as well. We're now on the front end corn in March at the lowest since December 2020. So the way it looks to me is we're really starting to open up the technical side of the equation. The funds are really pressing at this point. I know as well, you've been looking at a lot of analysis on the soybean market and some of the correlations and connections with China and China's economy currently. Soybeans, too, have been in a bit of a downtrend. Can you give us just a little background on some of that analysis that you've been doing? Yeah, and this is something you can you can check out on our website to get more information on for sure. But this is I think we're still trading supply and weather left over from 2023, Jesse, and in a big reason because of China's economy. Um, the commodity driver for the commodity trend in 2024, I think, is still the fear that China's demand and their deflation <clears throat> is at the top of the list for why the commodities don't need to rally. And so therefore, supply and weather are the big drivers instead of the idea that the best cure for low prices is low prices. I'm, I'm a contrarian. I'll say it up front. China's economy is weak, but I think there's some green shoots. And I do think that 2024 could give us a possibility, if not a probability, for a low uh, in the market. And I, I would suspect that crude oil and the wheat market are the best two leading indicators for an early 2024 calendar year low. But GDP numbers, their inflation gauge, um, some measures, their their inflation, their deflation is the worst since 2009. Other measures put it at the worst since 1999. So you can understand where the trade's coming from. 
I know a lot of farmers are pretty, uh, pretty much, they're not a fan of where some of these current commodity prices are, particularly in corn and soybeans. What would you say to folks if they're taking a hard look at their marketing plan right now here, Mike, and maybe they haven't done as much uh, selling of grain or marketing of grain as they probably should have? I mean, what, what should they be thinking about right now? Yeah, and I put me in that camp as well as far as the corn side of the equation because I was looking for a wheat low several months back. I think for me, Jesse, it goes back to the stocks report on the WASD report from last week. What I do think USDA is right on is that we're tighter on soybean stocks. They say on-farm down 2% from a year ago. Corn stocks on-farm up 16% from a year ago. I would probably start with basis contracts if I were working with someone one-on-one when it comes to corn. I'd probably go to puts and just put floor uh, floor positions in place when it came to the downside in the soybeans because a five to eight percent decline from here is almost a dollar in the soybeans and i think that's worthy of going after on the futures market but maybe not sell too much um, when it comes to the, the cash market unless you're not you know very well sold that's where i've got one-to-one client conversations going on if you're 20 30 percent sold on 2023 beans yeah get some more beans sold if we can't hold these technicals in the cash market but otherwise maybe look to the puts instead Getting aggressive on any new crop contract selling as well here at this venture, Mike? No, but the big thing that I see right now, Jesse, is the soy futures in in the new crop November. There's still potential new crop downside because that bean corn ratio is still 2.5. That's not buying any uh, corn acres back. That's keeping the soybean acres very much intact, in my opinion. So that's where I'm going to really have to make some tough decisions if uh, we can't find some support off the corn and the wheat market here in the next few days. Uh, let's talk livestock cattle, especially cattle off to a, a strong start on Thursday ahead of Friday's uh, next cattle on feed report. You know, I, I'm watching this market closely here, Mike, and I know too watching uh, the box beef is cuts moving back closer to three hundred dollars. That's something interesting to me. What are your thoughts in this cattle market right now? Yeah, that box beef number and the weather we've had and the lack of appreciation in the futures market for the weather the cattlemen and the ranchers have had would suggest to me we've got upside here. But I would also say take advantage of that upside because USDA's numbers last week, they gave us 70 more million in beef imports, 60 more million and 60 million less pounds in beef exports. And then they raised production 120 million pounds all these numbers for 2024. So they gave us 250 pounds net more supply domestically. That's about 1% of production. So if I could get up towards 177, 178 in the April futures, I'm still a hedger, Jesse, at this stage for quarter two in this marketing uh, timeline. But I I really think that the weather premium has not been put into the uh, cattle. And I don't think the geopolitical premium has been put into the crude oil. That's how this market is trading. Are you concerned about this uh, cattle on feed report at all? We've had a a fairly bearish run as of late. Uh, Are you worried about it coming up here on Friday? The thing that would bother me the most is that the on-feed January 1 got above or stayed above 12 million head. I think that would send a negative signal that the nearby cattle don't need to rally that much because like the corn, we got plenty in the farmer's hands, plenty in the rancher's hands, and in the feedlots. So that's probably the biggest number I'd be watching. 
Well, of course, uh, we should remind folks the risk of trading futures and options can be substantial. I always like to get that plug in there every now and then. Uh, Mike, uh, good thoughts as always. Before we let you go, if folks want to reach out to you with questions, uh, take a look at their marketing and uh, look at your analysis, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, the best place is globalcomresearch.com, globalcom with two M's, research.com. It's our 15th year anniversary this year. We've got a special on the on the website. Please take a look at that. Take a look at our product services. Well, Mike, always good to chat with you. Stay warm there in Kansas. Thanks for joining us today on AOA. We appreciate the time. Thank you, Jesse. Have a great day, sir. Mike Zuzalo with Global Commodity Analytics joining us here today on AOA. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk carbon dioxide pipelines, a new white paper out from the University of Houston. One of the researchers on that paper, Paul Doucette from the university, will join us next. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Back with more right after this. Join us the first Wednesday of every month on AOA for the latest episode of the Monthly Grind with our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. We'll discuss the latest topics surrounding the corn industry, the relationships between corn and other parts of the agricultural supply chain, the newest initiatives and partnerships from NCGA's Market Development Action Team, and much more. That's the first Wednesday of every month for the Monthly Grind on AOA. It's a show you don't want to miss. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from throughout the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Are you prepared for an emergency or disaster? Because it's not a matter of if, but when. Don't find yourself saying, <laughs> When the storm rolls in, my time to find a pet-friendly evacuation center will have run out. The scorching heat wave will leave me powerless to cool my insulin. I'll face a hurricane without meds. Now that's a tough pill to swallow. Let's prepare so we all have a better story to tell. Get started at ready.gov slash older adults. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section, when dad injured his back, when your basketball star tore his ACL. Opioids helped with the pain, and you held on to them, just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Opioids are powerful pain-reducing prescription medicines, but most people who are prescribed opioids don't finish their prescriptions. So millions of unused opioids are sitting at homes across the country. And tragically, more than 100 Americans die every day from overdoses involving opioids. What can you do to protect your family? Remove the risk of unused opioids from your home. 
pills, patches, or syrups in drawers, purses, and cabinets, anywhere they might be hiding. To find out how to dispose of them properly, visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And joining us now here on AOA, we want to have a conversation about a new white paper out from the University of Houston looking at carbon dioxide pipelines. No doubt that has been a hot topic of conversation across much of the country and across the Midwest here in the last year or so. Joining us for a conversation and talking about the research with us, Paul Doucette with the University of Houston is joining us. He is the Hydrogen Program Officer in the Division of Energy and Innovation at the University. And Paul, thanks for the time here today on AOA. Hope you're doing well. You're most welcome, uh, Jesse. I'm I'm doing fine. Thanks. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, give us uh, just a background first uh, about the white paper and some of the uh, the big things that you guys found with your research here, looking at carbon dioxide pipelines. Paul, let's just start there. So we started the project, Jesse, to to try to put on paper and in front of sort of not a non technical audience enough information about why, what part carbon dioxide pipelines are, why they're necessary, what are the risks, what are the mitigations, um, so that people across the country who are potentially stakeholders in this debate would have a source of sort of um, neutral information, if you will. The, the, the purpose of the paper is to, is to inform and not advocate. We don't really take a position on whether you should or shouldn't have a pipeline in a particular community, but rather say if, if there is a pipeline under consideration, here are the kinds of things you need to be aware of. Well, let's go through some of the the potential, the, the good and the bad, maybe, that you guys found with your research. Let's start on the good side first. What were some of the, uh, the big things you guys found, some of the potential wins, so to speak, of a, a carbon dioxide pipeline? Well, the, the, the traditional answer to that question is it brings a lot of jobs. Um, first, construction jobs, but then there are operating jobs. Um, if you're concerned at all about climate change, as I, as I suspect your audience is, then finding a way to get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere is essential. And pipelines are critical in that space. They're Carbon dioxide is created in industrial facilities and it can be sequestered or used in other places. And and getting the carbon dioxide from point A to point B is is a, a necessary link. Um, I think the other thing that we learned is that amongst the various forms of transportation uh, of carbon dioxide, pipelines are far and away the safest. And among pipelines, oil, gas, oil, natural gas, and carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide pipelines are still far and away the safest kind of pipeline. So I think those are the uh, the big learnings. Uh, I suppose if there was if there's one big takeaway here, it is that all of the stakeholders need to come together and collaborate. That that this is not a, a, an easy topic. 
Um, and th- there's just an awful lot of um, sort of visceral knee- knee-jerk reaction um, based on sometimes shallow facts, and that if that if people um, address the facts, look at the risks, understand the mitigations, they will be able to come to an informed decision about what's best for them and their community. Well, and the safety aspect of these pipelines, I know that has been a big contention for folks who are uh, against pipelines in certain parts of the Midwest. Uh, but to your points here and, and the research you guys did at the University of Houston, you guys really found that they're uh, very, very safe, right, Paul? They, they are safe. I mean, they, they and, and safe, safe is, the, is um, how do I want to say this? Safe is not risk-free, right? There's nothing in the world or society that's completely risk-free. So there are safety considerations that have to be taken into account. But what we found is that if pipelines are um, installed properly, operated properly, with the proper oversight from both state and federal officials. And if if the community and the community of first responders are fully informed and, and trained as, as necessary, then they are a lot safer than a lot of other things that you can you, you might consider in the world today. Well, I know too, with the whole conversation surrounding carbon capture and utilization and storage, I know a lot of folks have looked at that aspect as well. What did you guys find on the on the storage side? I know there's been a lot of talk about these big underground storage facilities in some places with some of these potential pipelines, things like that. I mean, I know there's a lot of different different things that could be done. Did you guys find anything on, on the storage side when you were looking uh, at things? Yeah, so so we did. Um, I, one of the things I think that, that your audience might be interested in is the industry, the, essentially the oil and gas industry, has been sequestering carbon dioxide for 50, 60 years. Um, it's It started way back in, um, I think it was in the 50s, uh, 1950s in, in California. And and it's been used as a, carbon dioxide was used to stimulate underground oil and gas reserves. And and when that happens, a percentage of the carbon dioxide stays in the underground formation. And so that's that's a very rudimentary way of of sequestering carbon dioxide. The other thing we learned, and and that might be of interest to your audience, is across parts of the country there's an enormous amount of na- basic natural gas that is stored underground. If you go up into the Northeast, for example, up into the Pennsylvania, New York area, um, there's a lot of natural gas in caverns in that part of the country because there's not enough pipeline capacity to get natural gas into the marketplace during the really, really cold winters that you experience in the upper mid, uh, upper Northeast. So the industry fills these caverns during the, um, during the summer and then the gas is available in the winter. So the point of that conversation, Jesse, is to say that the, the industry in general has a pretty good handle on how to store natural gas and how to store carbon dioxide. Um, but it, it does require technology to monitor, make sure the carbon dioxide stays where it's put. Um, it requires the selection of a proper um, subsurface cap rock to be sure that it doesn't um, migrate either to the surface or into 
some other part, just some other part of the uh, the formation. Mm-hmm. And, and so again, it, this is the same thing we've been talking about. It there's this, there, there's positives, there's risks, there's mitigations, and it, and it takes a complete understanding of all of that in order to be able to make informed choices. Well, and to that point about making informed choices, I know that another aspect of this is the is the land ownership aspect, and that's not something you guys looked at here, and that's a totally different conversation, but at least looking at the, the safety aspects and just the technical side of this, I've talked about this before on the show, Paul, and, and I'm sure you could share your thoughts on this. It, it really comes down to having a good, honest conversation and trying to have a, a lot of facts sit in front of you to make an informed decision, right? Well, that's right. I mean, when a when a pipeline company comes into a community and wants to to build a line or establish a right of way through a community, you know, they're going to sit down and have have a conversation with community leaders, with the mayor. There probably are going to be public hearings. There may even be public town halls. That the difficulty in the past has been, I believe, that the the community, the neighbors, the, the folks who actually live in the community have not had sufficient sort of background information on pipelines so that they could be, they could act, they could go to these meetings and ask informed questions. And, and when they heard answers, they had something to weigh those answers against. And so that's the point of this paper, that, that people who have to face this question will feel empowered to be a a, a, a fair and equal partner in the collaboration and the conversation that takes place. Well, Paul, I appreciate the time and the thoughts here. Folks want to uh, take a look at the white paper that you guys put out with the University of Houston and, and get some uh, get some questions answered, maybe, and some myths uh, demystified, so to speak, in terms of carbon dioxide pipelines. I'm sure they could find it uh, online uh, from the university. Can uh, can they do that? Yeah, they can. Um, the basic website is the university. It's uh.edu. So universityofhouston.edu. Um, and then when you get there, you search for energy and innovation white papers or carbon dioxide pipeline white paper, and you'll find it. Fantastic. Well, we do appreciate the time. And again, you could find it uh.edu. We've been talking with Paul Doucette from the University of Houston about carbon dioxide pipelines. Paul, Appreciate the time and the conversation. Thanks for joining us on AOA today. Thank you, Jesse. Take care. Once again, Paul Doucette with the University of Houston talking about their new white paper looking at carbon dioxide pipelines. And again, I think it's important to uh, get all the facts to make an informed decision and really just have a a good, honest uh, Midwest conversation about divisive topics and issues like this one, no doubt. All right, we'll be back with more here on AOA, Agriculture of America, right after this. Non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Does it seem like the bank has no interest in helping you save your home and you feel like you have nowhere to turn for help? Then we have good news for you. Foreclosure protection services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. That's all they do. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. 
If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect that may save your home. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this Market Update. The grains and oil seeds are mixed this morning. Beans are hovering around unchanged, slightly firm. Corn is down about four or five pennies, while wheats are mixed but mostly lower. Livestock, fats, and feeders are higher, with hogs lower currently. Now, the recovery in soybeans and soy meal, they appear to be short-lived as both markets sold off again yesterday and have relinquished early gains from this morning. Both markets are modestly lower, with bean oil slightly higher to begin today's trade. Now, the weakness recently has come despite several private crop estimates and consultancies ratcheting down Brazil soybean estimates. There are low-ball crop estimates out there that range from a ridiculous low 135 million metric tons to 150 million. That's compared to the January WASDI estimate of 157 million metric tons. The three- to four-month period of extreme heat and dryness in the northern two-thirds of Brazil prior to the recent rain has made predicting yield far more difficult this year. Argentina, on the other hand, has had favorable weather and is well on the way to doubling last year's production. Now that is one of the catalysts, along with the extreme fun long and soy meal, that has pummeled the soy meal futures market since mid-November. Now, wheat markets, they're mixed today following yesterday's fall to new contract lows in both Kansas City and Minneapolis March contracts. Paris Milling Wheat Futures set a new contract low on Tuesday and are trading just above that this morning. The weakness does come despite a pickup in end-user buying in the past few days. Egypt's GASC bought 360,000 metric tons of wheat yesterday, choosing to forego the one cheap cargo offered from Ukraine for five Russian and one French cargo. Algeria is also rumored to have bought 900,000 metric tons of wheat with some Russian wheat, but the lion's share of the purchase from Bulgaria, Romania, and France. Tensions in the Middle East continue to grow with Pakistan carrying out a retaliatory strike within Iranian borders after Iran's strike within Pakistan earlier this week. While the dollar is higher once again today and crude oil prices are almost up 1% this morning. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. You can't escape a traffic jam. Know what else you can't escape? Seasonal allergies. Ah! No! And you might think you can avoid that coffee stain until... Oh, really? You can't escape a lot of things in life. But you can escape prediabetes. Prediabetes captures one in three adults. There are usually no signs of prediabetes. In fact, most people don't even know they have it. But with early diagnosis, you can change the outcome and prevent or delay type 2 diabetes. Take action by taking the one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. You might not be able to escape having this song stuck in your head. But you can escape prediabetes. Go to doihaveprediabetes.org today. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA. Well, we continue to watch what is happening on Capitol Hill as the first of two government shutdown deadlines in front of us here on Friday the 19th. There are a lot of questions, a lot of concerns, and a lot of folks looking for answers 
We're going to take a look at what is happening and what's in front of us here on Capitol Hill. Joining us for a conversation today, she is the Director of Economic Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Rachel Snyderman is with us. Rachel, great to have you back on AOA today. How are you? Thanks so much. It's great to be back, you know, just jumping from one fiscal crisis to the next. Yeah, uh, really, I, I think a lot of folks are at this point, I don't want to say we become numb to this because I, I don't think that's necessarily the case, but I don't know if I could find a better way to describe this, Rachel, is because we just, we've been kicking the can down the road and down the road, and now we have another deadline in front of us to keep the government funded and open, and it's this tiered approach that was set up. So we have one deadline Friday and then another one coming up in a few weeks in February. What is the latest you're hearing? Are we going to get something done by Friday or are we going to push this can down the road even farther, Rachel? What are you hearing right now? Yeah, well, you know, you make such a good point about this, you know, the kicking the can metaphor because you're right. Congress is months late in finishing its routine budget homework. It should have done this, funded the government fully through the current fiscal year 2024 as of October 1st of last year. But here we are still debating um, you know, what these levels should be and what this package looks like uh, at four months into the fiscal year. So right now what we're hearing is we're about, as you know, about 36 away from a potential partial government shutdown where appropriations bills for four of the 12 um, for agencies that are impacted by four of 12 appropriations bills will expire at midnight tonight if Congress chooses to do nothing. Um, and the remaining eight of those bills will expire on February 2nd. But what we're hearing right now is some optimistic movement, especially in the Senate, where they're going to vote today on this two-part kind of stooled or laddered continuing resolution that will again just kick this can down the road um, through March 1st for those first four bills. And then again, March 8th for those latter eight bills, just buying Congress a bit more time to um, to finalize and hash out this this final funding bill for for the full fiscal year. Now, you know, it's important to note that um, in a time where we feel like politics is so polarized, this this approach was you know negotiated by congressional leadership. It has the support of Four Corners leadership um, to avoid a government shutdown that uh, a partial mm -hmm. government shutdown that would kick in tomorrow night. But then it's going to really be look to the House if if the Senate does pass this tonight to to um, buckle up and and get this through before um, before midnight, which is you know a tall order. We've seen them do it before, but it's going to require um, you know Democrats and Republicans working together. Well, and thinking about that and looking for some bipartisanship here on Capitol Hill to try and get this done, I know we got a top-line funding number here, and that was one piece of the puzzle, but then we got to try to you know, disseminate this out into all the various appropriations and, and all the different segments here to keep government open. And I know USDA, of course, uh, is roped up into this here in this first set of deadlines, but as you look at that top line number, I, I know there's been some chatter that some folks aren't happy about that, particularly the the members on the the right wing members in the House, the far right wing members. I mean, realistically, are we going to be able to work with this top line number? What are you hearing on that? You know, I do think that at this point, given where the discussions are, that lawmakers are going to be able to live within this top line. Important to note that this was actually a top line that was uh, negotiated 
um, and into law um, back in June when we you know faced our the um, the previous funding deadline and and um, and negotiations over how to address the debt limit back in June of 2023. So I do think that right now you know we're looking at a situation where. We, we need to provide certainty to the agencies and you know you know USDA facing a partial shutdown tomorrow night um, if this bill does not go through um, and lawmakers will have time to kind of negotiate uh, what those agency top lines will be what we're seeing right now is really the holdup is now not just that top line but what's going to go on with this bipartisan border deal that is being hashed out in the Senate um, we saw yesterday a meeting um, on the uh, in the White House about um, some of the negotiations that are pertaining to this border deal and also additional supplemental funding uh, for our allies abroad. Um, and we've seen House Republicans kind of come out um, in force to 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 show um, that they mm-hmm. you know, we still need more time to, to understand what's in that deal. And that um, but so, you know, I think time will tell as to whether or not, you know, what that what that will look like. But we've seen you even within the Senate, you know, Senate Republican leader, um, Minority Leader McConnell come out and you know really push to get this border deal moving, recognizing that this is actually uh, the, the the result of of some very strong and, and goodwill bipartisan bipartisan negotiating over the past months to secure our border um, and to support our allies. And so, um, you know, we're going to see that continue to be, I think, a sticking point. Um, and we'll also re- you know show that the Speaker Johnson to get this continuing resolution over the finish line is going to have to require the vote and support of a lot of Democrats. We're talking with the director of economic policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center, Rachel Snyderman, here today on AOA. Rachel, if we do kick the can down the road here and we get a little more time, uh, you know, realistically, can we expect to get something done here by March or hopefully? I mean, what would that mean? for you know for government funding here if we you know essentially go half a fiscal year without having these numbers finalized are are there any major implications that we would be looking at there so you know continuing it's an excellent point that you make continuing resolutions um you know while they provide certainty to agencies because they're able to fund um, agency operations at last year's funding levels, they also hamper new investments, new projects, new programs that the government wants to invest in and expand. Um, and so I think that, you know, it it really does um, kind of hurt agencies' ability to plan for the, 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 the current and future fiscal years when we're con- just continually kicking the can down the road. You know, another point to note is that agencies right now are already, are um, you know, we're in the thick of planning for fiscal year 2025. The president's budget mm-hmm. will be released in a number of weeks, um, outlining you know, his vision for funding the government. And then Congress will be in this place by October 1st, you know, needing to pass um a spending bill for for the next fiscal year. And so we should be having that debate right now, not the debate that you know Congress should have had um, last summer and, and passed into law before October 1st of 2023. And so you know this really does put federal agencies and um, the hardworking, hardworking men and women across the country who staff them um, in a really difficult spot where we're currently trying to deliver programs and services at last year's funding levels, plan for the potential where we're going to get a full year appropriations bill, and then of course also um, doing that budget planning for for the next fiscal year and beyond. 
Rachel, are folks uh, on Capitol Hill and in D.C. worried as well about all of uh, all of this work that's got to get done being tied up in uh, presidential politics as we I think we can say officially have kicked off presidential election season with the Iowa caucuses earlier this week. Is there any concern or do you feel like most of the uh, work that Congress has to get done is going to be insulated from presidential politics season? Yeah, well, it's an excellent point because, you know, I think that when I'm thinking about the fiscal deadlines that relate to the current election, it's really looking it's staring down what 2025 is going to bring. I think 2024 is going to be a lot of kind of these um, political opportunities to use the megaphone to but not necessarily a ton of legislating other than just the routine homework assignments that Congress needs to get done, like passing a budget. But when we're looking at 2020, uh, looking ahead to 2025, the next Congress and the next administration is going to immediately be faced with another debt limit debate, um, trillions of dollars worth of tax cuts stemming from um, former President Trump's tax bill in 2017 that will expire after its 10-year um, window at the end of 2025. Um, and so there are going to be some significant deadlines that the next administration is going to have to, and the next Congress is going to have to prepare for that preparation needs to start now. And so that's where I think that, you know, while we're seeing a lot of these kind of routine um, budget fights play out in, in the media, and of course, um, it's really planning ahead for what's to come in 2025, where I think that, you know, it behooves lawmakers to get ahead rather than, of course, kicking the can down the road, having these 11th hour um, fiscal fights that only end because, you know, you need both sides of the aisle to, to agree and move forward. Well, Rachel, uh, what should folks think about here? And keep in mind, we got about a minute here. What should they watch for and just try to remember as we watch this process uh, ongoing in Washington, D.C. right now? Yeah, you know, I think that there is a real opportunity for folks to you know, engage with their, their congressmen and women, um, underscoring the importance of you know getting this getting their budget homework done on time um, and ensuring that we don't even find ourselves in a situation where the, the we're potentially come midnight tomorrow night if the house hasn't passed um, a CR, for example, and we have a temporary shutdown, even the potential for a shutdown causes enormous uncertainty and strain on federal workers across the country. And so I think that it's important that, you know, we utilize our democratic process to, to ensure that lawmakers recognize that, you know, holding up funding the government for a political bargaining chips is not how it's it's not a way to run a country it's not a way to run the strongest economy and it's certainly not how we run our individual household finances <laughs> well uh, great points appreciate the time folks can learn more bipartisanpolicy.org we've been talking with rachel snyderman director of economic policy at the bipartisan policy center rachel thanks for joining us on aoa today we appreciate the time thanks always great to be back all right, coming up next, we're going to get a preview of Commodity Classic with Brandon Honeycutt. That's next here on AOA. My name is Ariel. When I arrived in the U.S. at 19, I struggled to find job opportunities without my high school diploma. My entire life changed when I took a chance and got my high school diploma at age 22. Everything I have, my education, my career, my marriage, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and my teachers. They were with me every step of the way, helping with my English and math. 
making sure I push through all the challenges. Ariel, your success proves that what I'm doing as a teacher has real meaning. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. Education was the key that unlocked all my opportunities. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Farming is dangerous. There's dangers all around us. We work around it and we live around it every day. And we just become desensitized to what's around us. We go through safety training and, you know, we try and do these things to make sure accidents don't happen, but you just never know. There are so many farmers that I think take for granted all of the underground utilities that are there. You don't want to hit a gas pipe because that's your life. The other part of it is if you hit certain things, you're liable for it. I mean, we kind to know what's out here, but all at the same time, you, you just always call. Farm Safe 811 starts with you. Whether you're installing drain tile or doing any sort of digging, always call 811 and wait for any underground lines to be marked and have the depth confirmed. That's farming with care. But if a line does get damaged, go somewhere safe and call 911. Always keep safety in the back of your mind. Just stay humble. For more information, go to farmsafe811.org. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, Neil Jockey, a corn trading expert with CHS, will provide a 2024 corn demand outlook. Neil, domestic corn use declined last year. Do you expect a rebound in 2024? 2023 was a very different year. We had a very poor crop in the Southern Plains. We were shipping corn from North Dakota through our cooperative systems, South Dakota, all the way down to Kansas and feeding the livestock industry down there. We have some problems with our domestic demand. Our livestock margins, our dairy margins, our swine margins, our poultry margins are all break even at best. And then, of course, you look at ethanol. Ethanol margins are poor at the best. Currently, we've came through some headwinds there. But our demand picture, we're just not growing demand. We're not growing livestock and we're not growing ethanol demand. Well, U.S. market share of world corn exports increased last year for the first time in three years. Do you expect more of the same in 2024? We increased for one basic reason, and that was Argentina had a crop disaster. Their crop was down 30% year on year. It's doing the opposite. We're going to grow 20 million met ton more corn in Argentina. They're going to steal every piece of export business they can to get back in the market. Our Brazilian production has exploded. Brazil is going to outpace the U.S. for exports for the first time since 2012. So uh, our export market does not look favorable. Well, how will corn supplies and demand affect planting decisions and marketing strategies, Neil? The market's expecting about 91 million acres. 91 million acres on a trend line yield will put our carryout close to 2.6 billion bushel or the highest carryout in the last 20 years in the U.S. We're going to have to store corn in the U.S. The U.S. is going to be the corn carryout for the world. If there's corn carries, meaning that corn's worth more next year than it is this year, the market has proven that the U.S. will be the place that the corn is carried. Thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. 
paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. Our experienced attorneys are standing by to evaluate whether you have a lung cancer claim that qualifies you for a cash award. The consultation is absolutely free and there is no risk and no money out of pocket. We only receive a fee when we secure you and your family a settlement. 250,000 people are diagnosed with lung cancer every year. You're not alone in this battle. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and that medical expenses are covered. Again, if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over age 60, call now. Don't delay. There are deadlines for filing claims. We're standing by 24-7. Call us at 1-844-903-1744. 1-844-903-1744. That's 1-844-903-1744. Attorney Advertising. William Stepacker Jr. is the attorney responsible for this ad. Main office, Grant, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. Informing America's Farmers and Ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA, Agriculture of America. Great conversation uh, with Rachel Snyderman from the Bipartisan Policy Center in that last segment. I know uh, a lot of folks, myself included, pretty uh, pretty much just dissatisfied with uh, the issues that we have going on uh, with government on Capitol Hill right now, trying to get things funded. Hopefully we can get some answers and get some resolutions here uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, Rachel brought up some real great points. And so hopefully we can get some things done. Of course, we got to get appropriations and then we got to turn our attention to a new farm bill and much more. And I know uh, that is uh, one of the uh, big topics of conversation uh, during winter meeting season Things like cost of inputs and more, that's also another topic of conversation. We have a new farmer-rancher survey available right now online on our websites and on our social media, and you can head there and voice your opinion. We'd love to hear what you are thinking, some of the issues that uh, are on your mind as we begin 2024 including uh, presidential election season and much more. You can find the links again on our social media and online uh, for the January Farmer and Rancher Survey. So uh, hopefully you get a few minutes. You can go uh, take that survey and we will record your answers and we'll share those results coming up here in just a few weeks time. Also, uh, we are getting prepared for Commodity Classic coming up in just a few weeks uh, in Houston, Texas, uh, coming up February 28th is when things kick off, and it rolls through March 2nd at the George R. Brown Convention Center in Houston, Texas, and looking forward to uh, another great Commodity Classic. I know we're trying to connect with one of the co-chairs of this year's Commodity Classic, Brandon Honeycutt from Nebraska. We'll see if we can get connected with him before the end of the show today, and uh, if we can't, we'll definitely uh, reschedule time with him, but I know folks are... Uh, excited for Commodity Classic this year. As always, there's a lot of great uh, great stuff on tap for this year's largest farmer-led, farmer-focused agricultural and educational experience. Uh, all the top brands will be there. The trade show, of course, a lot of the great educational opportunities and more. You can uh, make sure to get registered for Commodity Classic, get your hotels booked, and much more. You can do all that at commodityclassic.com. Again, that is commodityclassic.com for 
more information on this year's upcoming Commodity Classic. Well, let's take a look at a couple news headlines here on AOA as we are watching a group of lawmakers asking the Department of Agriculture to swiftly open the 2024 Dairy Margin Coverage Program sign-up period, a program, the nation's risk management tool for dairy producers that helps farmers manage changes between milk prices and feed costs. The lawmakers, including Iowa Republican Representative Randy Feenstra, writing, quote, now as we are nearly halfway through January, three or there continues to be no indication given to producers of when they will be eligible to select their DMC coverage level for 2024, end quote. Now, the delay, the lawmakers say, coupled with the unpredictable nature of the industry is concerning for the farm economy and the constituents we represent. Throughout 2023, dairy producers faced numerous challenges, high input costs, continued inflation, and unpredictable weather conditions, meaning that programs like the dairy margin coverage which provides certainty during unstable economic conditions are vital to producers in rural communities, the letter says. Now, lawmakers urged USDA to quickly open the sign-up period to provide dairy producers certainty in 2024. Also, as we look at news headlines, large-scale family farms accounted for a majority of the value of commodity production in 2022, according to a new report from USDA's Economic Research Service. Specifically, these farms accounted for 51% of cash grains and soybeans, 56% of hog production, 65% of cotton, along with 65% of specialty crops, and 76% of dairy products. Now, on the other hand, small family farms accounted for 3% of the value of production for dairy, 4% for cotton, 7% for specialty crops, and 26% for beef, but they produced the majority of hay, 53%, and 45% of poultry and eggs. The value of production by non-family farms ranged from 5% for both hay production and poultry and eggs production to 19% for specialty crop production. Large-scale family farms are those with a gross cash farm income of more than $1 million. Well, the marketing year 23-24 global soybean production forecast has increased by 0.1 million metric tons this month to 399 million metric tons. USDA's monthly oil crops outlook shows higher production in Argentina, the United States, Paraguay, Russia, China, and Bolivia more than offset lower production in Brazil. Now, global soybean trade for 23-24 forecasted to be up from last month and stands at 170.9 million metric tons due to higher exports from Paraguay and Russia. The global soybean crush is nearly unchanged this month as higher crush in Argentina, India, Egypt, and Thailand offsets the reduced crush volume in Brazil. Global soybean ending stocks are forecast at 114.6 million metric tons, up 0.4 million metric tons from last month's forecast and 12.7 million metric tons above last year's level. In the latest crop production report by USDA, U.S. soybean production was raised by 35.2 million bushels on higher yields. The harvested acreage is reduced this month, 0.4 million acres on lower harvested areas. So some interesting notes there. And also the United Soybean Board on Wednesday released the 2023 Soy Sustainability Overview. The report outlines the partnerships formed through checkoff investment to drive innovation in sustainability. The advances include efforts to enhance sustainability in production, agriculture, and ongoing development of new soy-based products that provide cleaner alternatives 
for everything from rubbers and plastics to adhesives and lubricants. You can find more information and view the full sustainability report from the United Soybean Board online at unitedsoybean.org. All right. Well, we are out of time here today on AOA. Thanks so much for joining us. Coming up on our program here tomorrow, we are going to talk with Andy Campbell from TractorZoom, get a rundown of equipment. We're also going to talk markets with Naomi Bloom from Total Farm Marketing. And we're going to get a preview of Cattle Convention with Kristen Torres, NCBA's Executive Director of Meetings and Events. So, got a busy show planned for you tomorrow looking forward to all of that we're out of time on aoa i'm jesse allen thanks for listening have a great rest of your day every day our brave military men and women along with their families make tremendous sacrifices for our freedom patriotic hearts a nonprofit organization is dedicated to supporting these heroes and their families in their times of need by donating your unwanted car to Patriotic Hearts, you'll be supporting job transition and job fair programs, veteran entrepreneurship, counseling, and retreats for combat veterans and their spouses. Call 800-560-3870. You'll receive a tax deduction and we'll arrange a free pickup at your convenience. Imagine the difference you can make in the lives of those who have given so much for our country. Your car donation will directly impact military families, veterans, providing them with the support they desperately need. Call 800-560-3870. You can become a part of something bigger. Join us in our mission to uplift and honor our military community. Call 800-560-3870 to donate your unwanted card. A promise is potent, born of intention, fueled by commitment. It's seeing things through, always showing up. And we know a thing or two about promises here at Susan G. Komen. Over 40 years ago, we locked arms with you toward one vision, a world without breast cancer. By investing in life-saving research and standing up for patient rights, we are shifting the system so all people everywhere get the care they deserve. Because if you've just been diagnosed and don't know where to turn, we've got you. If you can't afford the treatment you need, we've got you. And if you are driven to raise money to honor the best friend you've just lost, we have a place for you here because of you. We're supporting those who need help today while tirelessly searching for tomorrow's cures. Ending breast cancer needs all of us. Visit Komen.org and be a part of the Susan G. Komen community today.